Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. Except this study guide, I'm not super sad because I'm finally back from summer vacation, I'm back in Chicago, and I'm back to recording in my beautiful podcast closet, which is rapidly getting smaller by the day because it has more and more clothes and shoes because fall is coming and this closet is meant to, you know, store my personal possessions and not just be a recording space. Anyways, in this episode, I'm going to be discussing Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein and the mother of science fiction. Mary Shelley isn't always included in the big six of British romanticism, hello sexism, but she is more than just Percy Shelley's wife and sometimes editor. She is an incredible author in her own right. You almost certainly read Mary Shelley in AP English Literature thanks to Frankenstein, or you've seen the cinematic and very inaccurate depiction of her famous lumbering monster. But her life is so much more than just her monster. Mary Shelley's study guide includes sex on a grave, some magical dreams, and a tumor. Let's begin. The woman who would be Mary Shelley is born August 30th, 1797, in northwestern London as Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. Her parents are William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. Let's quickly talk about her parents because they're actually important to her story. Her father, William Godwin, is a well-known radical political philosopher, and her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, is a philosopher and early feminist who wrote Vindication of the rights of women. Neither of her parents actually believe in marriage, but before Mary is born, they get married to make sure that any children they have together could have social rights. At the time, illegitimate children have very few rights because welcome to the 1790s. In fact, Mary Wollstonecraft already has one illegitimate child, a daughter named Fanny Imlay, who is a toddler and who had been born in the French city of Le Havre during the Reign of Terror. For her second daughter's birth, Mary Wollstonecraft decides that she doesn't need a doctor, only a midwife. After all, Mary Wollstonecraft had done just fine during the birth of her first daughter, and that had been in France during the Reign of Terror. She's given birth to her second child in London, not in danger of having her head cut off. And at the beginning, the birth of Mary Godwin goes pretty well. Mary Wollstonecraft's labor only lasts seven hours. The baby comes out alive. It's looking great. But Mary Wollstonecraft doesn't fully deliver the placenta, and they have to call over a male doctor who manually delivers the placenta with his very unwashed hands. Mary Wollstonecraft develops an infection, and given that it's the 1790s, we don't have antibiotics. Mary Wollstonecraft ends up dying 10 days later in agony of an infection known as perpetual fever. 
Mary Godwin, who will later on be known as Mary Shelley, will never know her mother. As a result, she is going to be raised pretty much by her father, William Godwin, who is completely devastated by the loss of Mary Wollstonecraft, who he genuinely did love, despite some of his questionable beliefs about marriage. Mary is going to be raised in the Godwin home, aka the Polygon, with her older half-sister, Mary Wollstonecraft's illegitimate daughter, Fanny Imlay. And let's just get this out of the way. William Godwin is pretty awful to Fanny Imlay. One, she's not his biological daughter, so he has no motivation to treat her well. Honestly, William Godwin could have kicked Fanny out. It was really generous of him to keep her at the home. And he just considers Mary to be superior in all respects. He thinks she's smarter, prettier, all around a better kiddo. During Fanny and Mary's infancy, William Godwin is going to be pretty busy working on publishing Wollstonecraft's papers and furthering her legacy, which is pretty awesome of him because he has work of his own to be furthering. And yes, sometime this furthering of Mary Wollstonecraft's legacy doesn't turn out all that well. For example, Godwin posthumously publishes a memoir of Mary Wollstonecraft where she talks really openly about her depression and affairs, which makes Mary Wollstonecraft a total laughingstock and sets the whole feminist movement back quite a few decades. But hey, at least he tried. Godwin is also going to be raising both Mary and Fanny with progressive educational techniques, a la Jean-Jacques Rousseau, which means reading Mary a lot of child-centered books, aka early nursery rhymes. He also famously is going to be teaching his young daughter how to read by tracing the letters on her mother's gravestone, which is very goth and maybe not the best way to teach a young child how to read. So that's what the early years of Mary's life is going to look like. But all that is going to change when Mary is four years old. Because when she's four, her father is going to remarry to their next-door neighbor, Mary Jane Claremont. Mary Jane Claremont is quite the character. She is pretending to be a widow. Spoiler alert, she's not a widow. She'd never been married and was just saying she was married to hide the fact that both of her children were legitimate. She has a son and a daughter. We don't really care about the son. The son is not important, but the daughter will have quite the intersection in Mary's life. The daughter's name is Jane Claremont, but she will go by Claire Claremont, and Claire Claremont she will be in this study guide. After Mary Jane marries William Godwin, the two families move in together. Mary Jane and William will have a son together, and no child in the Godwin-Claremont household will have the same set of parents, which is very modern and progressive of this household. Tragically, Mary is going to have a really rough relationship with her brand new stepmother. Mary Jane Claremont is not thrilled with how close Mary and William Godwin are. For example, Mary Jane Claremont is going to send her daughter, Claire, 
off to boarding school to get a formal education, but will not do the same with Mary. She also is going to have Mary do the bulk of the household chores and is going to limit her interactions with her father. So, Mary Godwin isn't going to get a formal education. She's going to be doing all the chores. It's a bit of a Cinderella story, but Mary is still going to learn a lot because her father has a very huge library and has quite a few friends who are very well educated, who are going to keep stopping by the house and informally teaching Mary things like Samuel Taylor Coleridge. When Mary Godwin is about eight years old, she is going to hear Coleridge recite Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner from underneath the sofa. She's lying there hearing one of the most famous poems in the English language. That's pretty cool, if you ask me. And Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is going to have a huge influence on Mary Shelley. Its setting in the Arctic is going to inspire the opening chapters of Frankenstein. Her father is also going to tutor Mary on and off. So her education is a little bit scattered, a little bit untraditional, but Mary Shelley is going to be really smart. And she's going to start writing at an early age. When she's 10, she writes and publishes her first poem, Monster Nankitapa. I'm not really sure how you pronounce it, but that was my best shot. This early poem is really successful, and it's going to be republished multiple times in Mary's life. She's also going to write a bunch of short stories, which don't quite see the same success as this early poem. For a lot of Mary's childhood, the family's income is pretty variable because, as it turns out, being a radical philosopher isn't exactly the greatest way to make a ton of money. Eventually, Mary Jane Claremont is going to start a publishing company that publishes books for children. And say what you will about Mary Jane Claremont, but this publishing company actually does a pretty good job, and it's going to provide most of the money for the Godwin Claremont Company. And it's this publishing company that publishes this poem of Mary's that I was just talking about. In 1812, when Mary is 15, her life starts to change. She is sent to live with a family, the Baxters, in Scotland. The Baxters are a family friend, and she's sent there for two reasons. First of all, we have that classic tense relationship with her stepmother. I mean, yes, it makes sense. She's a teenager. She's a little unruly. Why wouldn't her parents want her to go live with some family friends and get out of the family's hair? And then there's the fact that Mary starts to suffer from this illness that manifests itself with a really painful rash on her arm. Most scholars think that this illness was simply eczema, or pariasis, something that was uncomfortable, but not actually contagious. But her family is afraid it was either leprosy or tuberculosis, and they don't want the rest of the family catching it, so they send her away to the Baxters up in Scotland. Mary's time with the Baxters was her first time living with a more traditional family, and she loves it and asks to spend the next year 
with the Baxters. During her time up in Scotland, she becomes really, really close to the Baxter sisters. They basically are her first friends, and she is hugely inspired by the Scottish landscape, which will become a running theme in some of her later writing. In November 1812, she's home on a brief break from the Baxter family, and while she's home, she briefly meets some new family friends, Percy Shelley and his wife, Harriet. This is a very brief meeting. Percy Shelley is from a wealthy family. He's become a bit of a prodigy for her father, and he started lending her father some money. Because remember, Percy Shelley's father is very wealthy, even if Percy and his father have a bit of a strained relationship. But this meeting is very brief. Neither of them probably thinks that much of it. But then, in May 1814, Mary's back home for a longer break, and this time she properly meets Percy Shelley. By now, Shelley is fully supporting the Godwin family financially. William Godwin is fully relying on Percy Shelley to make ends meet. Apparently, according to legend, Mary Shelley is hanging out in the family library, probably reading a book, and Percy Shelley stumbles upon her, and Mary's wearing this tartan dress and looks really appealing, and Percy is like, oh damn, I am into her. Mary, meanwhile, sees Percy Shelley as this major idealist and possible genius and starts chatting to him about politics and religion. They quickly fall into a relationship, even though Mary is only 16 and Percy is 21 and married to another woman and has two children, but they don't let that stop them. The two quickly consummate their relationship on Mary's mother's grave at some point in the summer of 1814 because, hey, isn't that the most romantic thing you can do if you're like a teenage girl? William Godwin, of course, finds out about the relationship and is massively not a fan. He tries to forbid them from being together, and this other guy, who's a member of the Baxter family, proposes to Mary, and Mary turns him down. Percy Shelley is super in to Mary Godwin. He threatens to commit suicide if they can't be together, and because Mary is 16 and young and impressionable, she's like, that's it. He loves me, and I love him. So, the two decide to run off to Europe together in July 1814. They bring along Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, because she can speak French and they can't. The trio spend about six weeks traveling around Europe together before they have to return to England because they've run out of money. They end up going to France, Switzerland, and modern-day Germany. This impromptu little Euro trip isn't quite as romantic as any of them are expecting because, one, they have no money, so they have to stay in some really shitty inns, and two, the Napoleonic Wars were wrapping up, so everything in Europe was kind of an epic mess. During the journey, the three keep a joint journal, but along the way, Mary loses the trunk that had most of her childhood diaries and letters, so a lot of what she was thinking and feeling during her childhood is lost to history. It's tragic. Upon the return back to England, Godwin is 
furious. He refuses to speak to both her and Claire and basically disowns them. Mary and Claire end up moving in with Shelley in an apartment in London, but she will eventually reconcile with her father. It just takes a lot of time. After coming back to England and moving in with Percy Shelley in a tiny little London apartment, Mary does give birth to a child whose father is Percy Shelley. However, she gives birth super prematurely and the baby dies soon after. And things aren't really going super well in other regards. None of them have much money because, remember, Percy and his wealthy dad aren't exactly on the best of terms. Percy is still technically married to another woman who he has kids with. And then Percy Shelley kind of epically puts his foot in things. He tries to get Mary to have an affair with his college BFF, Thomas Jefferson Hogg, who had also tried to sleep with Shelley's wife Harriet. And Mary's like, yeah, no, I'm not about this polygamous lifestyle, thanks. And then Shelley and Claire Claremont get really, really close with each other and may or may not have been sleeping with each other. This is a big mystery for the ages, which causes a lot of tension for poor old Mary. Things briefly look up when Percy Shelley's grandfather dies and Percy inherits some money. Around this time, Mary, who's under a lot of stress, has a dream where her dead baby comes back to life. Remember this dream. It may or may not have served as possible inspiration for the novel she's most famous for, Frankenstein. In the spring of 1816, Shelley, Mary, and Claire return to Europe. Early in 1816, Claire Claremont had had an affair with Lord Byron, and she is now pregnant with his baby and would like to track him down and let him know that. Thank you very much. Byron is in Lake Geneva, so she decides to go there, and Mary and Shelley go with her. They end up in Lake Geneva, Switzerland, and they end up renting a house next to Lord Byron. Byron decides that he hates Claire Claremont and would like nothing to do with her, even though she's pregnant with his kiddo. However, Byron and Percy Shelley become BFFs, and Byron keeps hitting on Mary Shelley and trying to sleep with her, even though Mary wants nothing to do with him. The summer of 1816 is a really cold and stormy summer. It's known as the year without a summer to history, and may have been caused by this large volcanic eruption in Indonesia. Because it's stormy and cold, and no one can go sailing on the lake, Lord Byron suggests that they have a ghost story contest. At first, Mary has trouble coming up with a story and feels really insecure about the whole thing because all the guys are having no issues coming up with spooky stories. However, she does come up with an idea for a story where a man brings a body to life via a waking dream that she has on June 16th. And remember, she'd also had that dream back in 1815 about her baby coming back to life. The waking dream of a man bringing a body to life ends up being the beginning of the idea for Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. She starts writing it down, and that dream is what becomes chapter 14 of 
Frankenstein. Initially, Mary Shelley just writes it down as a short story, but Percy Shelley pushes her to make it a novel, and a novel is exactly what it will become. But Mary can't spend that much time thinking about Frankenstein and like Geneva and all that because in the autumn of 1816, she, Claire, and Percy return to England and things are going to get a little messy. In October, Mary's older half-sister, Fanny, kills herself via an overdose of laudanum. Fanny's decision to commit suicide was based on a variety of factors, including the fact that she had been pushed out of the Shelley Godwin Claremont household and hadn't been invited to go to Europe with them, which was really upsetting to Fanny, who was deeply in love with Percy Shelley and was heartbroken over the fact that Shelley had chosen Mary over her. Fanny was also upset by the fact that William Godwin was blaming her for some money that Percy Shelley had never paid him. Pretty soon after Fanny's death, the body of Shelley's wife, Harriet, turned up in a river in London. It turned out that Harriet had killed herself via drowning. While Harriet's death was pretty heartbreaking, it did mean that Percy Shelley was now a single man and that Percy and Mary could get married. And they did. They ended up getting married three weeks after Harriet's body was found. So now we can officially refer to Mary as Mary Shelley, even though I've been referring to her as that throughout this study guide. The marriage to Shelley did help heal Mary's relationship with her father, William Godwin. It had seemed that all William wanted for his daughter was for her to be properly married so that society could somewhat respect her, and once that happened, he does welcome her back into the fold. Even though Mary and Percy were married, which was socially acceptable, Percy does lose the custody of his children with his first wife. Around this time, Claire Claremont also gives birth to her child with Lord Byron, who will be a daughter who will be alternatively named Alba and Allegra. Soon after her marriage to Percy Shelley, Mary publishes her first book, which is a travelogue about their trip to Europe in 1814, which has the very short title, History of a Six Weeks Tour Through a Part of France, Switzerland, Germany, and Holland, with letters descriptive of a sail round the Lake of Geneva and the glaciers of Chamuni. Yeah, that's not a mouthful at all. History of a Six Weeks Tour was inspired by a book that Mary's mother had written about her own travels in Europe in the 1790s. History of a Six Weeks Tour is really full of melodrama because it was based on the journals that Mary, Percy, and Claire were keeping during this trip, and let's be honest, all of them could be extremely dramatic. The next year, Mary publishes Frankenstein. When Frankenstein comes out in 1818, everyone thinks it's by Percy Shelley, not Mary Shelley. 
because Percy Shelley writes the introduction, and the rest of the book was published anonymously. And let's be real, in 1818, Percy Shelley is much more famous than his wife, and he's more likely to publish this huge, revolutionary new novel a famous poet, or his wife who's only known for being the daughter of a philosopher. Yeah, the famous poet, even though, as it's going to turn out, it was his wife who wrote it. That same year, Mary and Percy move to Italy. They do this for a few reasons. First of all, Claire Claremont has finally gotten Lord Byron to recognize Albus Las Allegra as his daughter, and she wants him to, you know, help out with the whole raising of the daughter thing. And as it turns out, being a single mom in England in the 1810s kind of sucks, and they decide to support Claire Claremont on this quest. Also, they decide to move to Italy because Percy Shelley has run up a ton of debts in England and can't pay them because Percy Shelley wouldn't know what living within his means meant if it bit him in the face, and he's also suffering from some minor lung issues. Once they're in Italy, Mary and Percy start running into some big relationship issues. They start facing a lot of judgment for their relationship in Italy because of the whole Percy Shelley being married to another woman when they got together and the fact that they married less than a month after Percy Shelley's first wife's suicide. There's also the fact that while they're in Italy, Percy wasn't exactly emotionally or physically faithful to Mary. He definitely had emotional affairs with women within their social circle, and Mary also wasn't exactly the most faithful either. It's unclear if she had physical affairs, but she definitely flirted with men within their social circle, including a Greek revolutionary. In December 1818, Percy Shelley puts his name down on the birth certificate for an orphan girl named Elena, and it's really unclear if he actually was the father of Elena or not. If he was Elena's father, we don't know who the mother was. The most likely candidates were either one of the servants or Claire Claremont, and if Claire was Elena's mother, this was a real slap in the face to Mary Shelley. Also in 1818 and 1819, their two children together, Clara and William, died of fevers in Italy, and this is just devastating for Mary. She completely blames Percy for their children's death. She says that if they hadn't moved to Italy on Percy's, on Percy's insistence, their children would have survived. However, in 1819, Mary gives birth to a son, Percy Florence Shelley, and the birth of Percy Florence really helps reconcile Mary and Percy Shelley. While she's in labor, she starts bleeding uncontrollably, and she almost dies, and Percy's able to save her by putting her in an ice bath, and it's in this moment of saving her that their relationship starts to improve because it turns out that saving someone's life can help them like you a little bit more. After giving birth to Percy Florence, Mary starts working on a new work, 
Matilda, this novel that is super autobiographical. She also starts working on another novel, Valperga, that gets published in 1823, and Mary's really working on these novels to help raise money for her father back in England. For the rest of Mary's life, one of her big goals is going to be raising money for her dad, William Godwin, because as it turns out, William Godwin is not exactly the best with money. Then in July 1822, Percy Shelley is unexpectedly going to drown in a sailing accident. Mary is going to completely blame Lord Byron for her husband's death because Percy Shelley had been sailing in a boat that Lord Byron gave him, and Mary feels like this boat wasn't seaworthy, and that Lord Byron knew this and should never have given the boat to Percy. With Percy Shelley's death, Mary is a widow at the young age of 24. She has a ton of her life ahead of her, so let's see what she's going to do with this life. She's going to spend a year in Italy before going back to London. After her husband's death, Mary's main goal is going to be making sure that Percy Shelley is properly remembered. However, there are going to be issues with this because Shelley's father, Sir Timothy, doesn't want this. Sir Timothy feels like that Percy Shelley was embarrassing because of his radical political beliefs. He's going to try to make sure that Percy Shelley's writing doesn't get published. He refuses to give Mary and Percy Florence a pension if Percy's work gets published. So Mary can't really publish any of Percy's work. Instead, all she can do is write editorial notes on Shelley's poetry until Sir Timothy Shelley dies in 1844. And while Sir Timothy gives her a pension, it's pretty limited. So Mary Shelley is going to write to support herself and her son. She publishes several collections of short biographies and writes another science fiction novel, The Last Man, in 1826. She also is going to write short stories in a revised edition of Frankenstein in 1831. It's this revised edition of Frankenstein that gets really famous and really puts Mary Shelley on the map. During all of this, Mary's going to have a really tense relationship with Percy Shelley's family. They don't approve of how she's raising Percy Florence Shelley. They feel like her entire lifestyle, as well as her herself, are too bohemian. And yes, while they do give her a very small pension for her son, they do force her to repay it. And if you're doing that, are you really giving someone a pension? I think it's kind of questionable. During all of this, Mary Shelley is also trying to focus on her relationship with her father, William Godwin. She's doing her best to help him stay out of debt, which is no easy feat because William Godwin is not the best at managing his money. She does manage to do this until Godwin's death in 1836. Once her father is dead, Mary Shelley sort of takes on the burden of being responsible for his legacy the same way she is trying to help her husband's legacy. And in the case of her father, doing this is really difficult for Mary Shelley. She has trouble with this because she no longer agrees on her father with everything, especially when it comes to her father's belief with religion but she's still trying to promote his ideas and get other people to agree with them. While all this is going on, 
Mary Shelley becomes close friends with Jane Williams, the wife of Edward Williams, who had died in the same boating accident as Percy Shelley. This is pretty difficult for Mary Shelley because Percy had written several love poems to Jane Williams, and for a while the friendship does exist, but then Jane Williams spreads rumors about Mary Shelley. She says that Percy had been planning to leave Mary due to Mary's temper, and Jane ends up marrying Thomas Jefferson Hogg, that friend of Percy Shelley's, who Shelley had wanted Mary to sleep with. So yeah, that's a thing that happened. Mary isn't completely alone during this time period. She gets several marriage proposals after Shelley's death, including from American novelist Washington Irving and Edward John Trelawney, a close friend of Lord Byron and Percy Shelley, who Mary had a really tense relationship. However, Mary Shelley turns down all marriage proposals that she received. Between 1828 between 1842 and 1844, Mary and her son travel through Europe after Sir Timothy increases Percy Florence's allowance a bit. She, during her time in Europe, she meets this Italian guy named Gateschi, who's involved in pro-Italian nationalist secret societies. Mary tells him that she's going to get him published and gives him money from a series that she and her son are writing about their travels to Europe. It ends up not going super well because she isn't able to give him quite enough money. Gateski claims that she had sent him these super juicy love letters and that he's going to publish them unless she gives him more money. A friend of Mary manages to literally grab the letters out of his hand and dispose of them so Mary doesn't have to worry about getting blackmailed and having these maybe true juicy love letters published. In the meantime, Mary deals with two other minor blackmail attempts, but they aren't quite as serious. Both of them involve Lord Byron, one of which is a fake love child of Lord Byron, and another of which is this guy who says he's going to publish a scandalous biography of Lord Byron. And I'm like, why are you bugging Mary Shelley about this? Mary Shelley has very little to do with Lord Byron. In the early 1840s, Mary Shelley starts complaining about various numbness on her right side and trouble speaking. These complaints start getting really serious in 1848, and in 1850, she gets diagnosed with a brain tumor. But it's the 1850s. There's not all that much doctors can do about it. Mary Shelley ends up dying of the brain tumor on February 1st, 1851, at the age of 53 in London. She is buried in St. Peter's Church next to the remains of her husband's heart. After her death, her son had her father and mother's remains exhumed and reburied next to Mary Shelley in the family's tomb at St. Peter's Church. So, for those study guide fans, who prefer bullet points to lectures, let's quickly recap the life of Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley was the daughter of two intellectual giants of their time, philosopher William Godwin and proto-feminist Mary Wollstonecraft. Tragically, her mother died of an infection 10 days after giving birth to Mary, so she was raised by her father, 
in his home known as the Polygon. When Mary was four, her life changed when her father remarried to Mary Jane Claremont. Mary Jane Claremont was your typical evil stepmother. She didn't let Mary go to a traditional boarding school and forced her to do most of the household chores. Even so, Mary had a pretty wide-ranging education thanks to her father's vast library and many intellectual friends. Given Mary and her stepmother's less-than-ideal relationship, Mary was sent to live with family friends up in Scotland when she was 15. A few years after that, she came back down to the family home when she met her father's prodigy, Percy Shelley. It was love at first sight. The two fucked on her mother's gravestone and soon ran off to Europe bringing along her French-speaking stepsister, Claire Claremont. Percy, Mary, and Claire spent six weeks gallivanting about France and Germany before running out of money and coming back to England. None of the parents were thrilled. Claire and Mary basically were disinherited, and Mary and Percy moved in together. Pretty soon, Claire had shacked up with Lord Byron and was pregnant, Byron, being Byron, ran off to Europe, and Claire went chasing after him. Mary and Shelley tagged along, and they all ended up at Lake Geneva during the famous Year Without a Summer. During that second Euro trip, they had a ghost story contest. At the beginning, Mary couldn't come up with a good story, but thanks to a spooky waking dream, she told the story that would eventually become Frankenstein. Percy, being a great boyfriend, urged her to write it down, and Mary Shelley did, enshrining one of the most famous science fiction stories to paper. Once the summer was over, the trio went back to England, where tragedy was waiting for them. Mary's half-sister Fanny killed herself, followed shortly by Percy Shelley's wife Harriet, but now Mary and Percy were free to marry, and they did get married. The next year, Mary Shelley published her magnum opus, Frankenstein, and soon after that, they went back to Europe to avoid debts and to help Claire Claremont once again track down Lord Byron. Mary and Percy would spend the rest of Percy's short life in Italy dealing with infidelity, the death of a few children, and reconciliation. Soon after this reconciliation, Percy Shelley would tragically die in a freak boating accident. Mary Shelley was now a widow at the age of 24. She returned back to England, where she would focus on re rehabilitating her husband's legacy, writing to make a living, supporting her father financially, and raising her only surviving son, Percy Florence. There was a brief interlude where she went to Italy, got blackmailed by a mysterious Italian, and then went back to England, where she continued writing. She turned down several marriage proposals before dying at the age of 53 of a brain tumor. Not bad. Quite an exciting life. So, that's Mary Shelley's life. Now, let's talk a little bit about what she's most known for, her writing. Obviously, the piece of writing that Mary Shelley is most famous for is Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein between 1816 and 1818. She wasn't even 20 when it was published, which, oh my gosh, 
holy cow. When I was 20, I, yeah, let's not even talk about what I was doing when I was 20, because it's pretty embarrassing in comparison. When most people think about Frankenstein, they probably think about either the classic Boris Koloff movie or the hilarious Mel Brooks, Young Frankenstein. Either way, mad scientist, big, spooky, green monster type with bolts in its hair, a lot of yelling of, it's alive! Yeah, that's not actually what Frankenstein is about. Frankenstein is a story within a story. It starts out with a man writing letters to his sister while he's on an Arctic expedition. During this expedition, he stumbles upon a man named Victor Frankenstein, who is tormented, and Victor decides to tell his story. Victor Frankenstein came from a happy family. Everything's going great. He's in love with his cousin, Elizabeth, who he's going to marry, which, yeah, let's put that aside. That was very common back then. He goes off to college. He's smart. He's studying science. Gross, I know. But he wants to be the best scientist of all. So he decides he's going to bring a body back from life. But once he's done that, he realizes he's made, in the words of Arrested Development, a huge mistake. He immediately regrets bringing this monster back from the dead. And as an annoyingly pedantic note, the monster isn't named Frankenstein, the scientist isn't named Frankenstein. So he ignores the monster and the monster ends up escaping. It's a big whole mess. But the monster's kind of annoyed and ends up committing murder etc, etc. They have a little confrontation. The monster's like, make me a wife so I can be happy. And Frankenstein's like, no, that'd be really bad. And the monster's like, fine, then I will kill everyone you love. And ends up doing that. And there are some weird interludes where Mary Shelley goes off on how beautiful nature is. And look at how sublime the storm is. And there's a side story about this family with, like, a blind father and a son who's in love with a woman he can't be with. And it's a really interesting book, but it's also a very strange book. Because when it was written, no one quite knew what a novel was. But I would highly recommend reading it because it's cool. And Mary Shelley's doing some really interesting things, both with the novel form and also in helping create the science fiction genre as we now know it. And it's not long. It's like 200 pages. Definitely would recommend. So that's Frankenstein. I definitely would consider it part of the romantic movement for a few reasons. One, we get these long descriptions of nature, which are very romantic. And we also get this exotic in the case of Frankenstein, it's the Arctic as the exotic, and we definitely see the influence that Rime of the Ancient Mariner had on Mary Shelley. Thanks, Samuel Coolridge. So, when it comes to Frankenstein, there's this whole debate about, is it original? Did Mary Shelley write it on her own? Or did Percy Shelley basically write it for her? Okay, here's what we know. Percy Shelley wrote the introduction to Frankenstein. And there are differences between the 1818 edition, where he helped, and later editions, which has led some people to think that he was 
more a collaborator and co-author than just an editor. However, it's more likely that he was just giving suggestions and input the way a modern agent and editor would give based on the edits that we know he gave. After all, in 1818, we didn't really have agents and editors the way we have nowadays. Also, for me, the idea that Percy Shelley was the true genius behind Frankenstein feels like the erasure of women's work that is really common. I talked about it on the Ada Lovelace tangent cast that I released to everyone so generously. So yeah, I'm really skeptical. Furthermore, we know that Mary Shelley is a capable author given her other work and the fact that she so widely edited Percy Shelley's own work. So yeah, no. I'm saying that Frankenstein is Mary Shelley's original work and I feel very confident saying that. Also, there's the argument that we should discount Frankenstein as this great revolutionary text because Mary Shelley so heavily borrows from pre-existing myths and ideas like the uh, Fall of Satan story and the Prometheus myth. Look, other authors did that. Look at Shakespeare and Milton. If Mary Shelley is straight up stealing and we should discount her for that, we should also discount Milton and Shakespeare. And no one's doing that. Once again, I think we are judging a female author much more heavily than we would judge a man. So let's not do that. Moving on from Frankenstein. Mary Shelley wrote a lot of other things. They're just not as widely known. Let's quickly run through some of her other interesting pieces of work. We have her novel, Matilda, which was extremely autobiographical and published posthumously. Matilda tells the story of a love triangle between a woman, her father, and a poet. Huh. I wonder who that reminds me of. It definitely doesn't sound like the relationship between Mary, William Godwin, and Percy Shelley. It explores Mary's guilt over her relationship with Percy and the death of her children. It definitely was the most autobiographical of her works, but then again, a lot of her pieces do have elements of her life in them, even Frankenstein, which does explore interesting questions about motherhood and creation. We then have Valperga, which was published in 1823. Valperga explores how a young woman finds out that her lover is unfaithful. It's pretty pessimistic. It's exploring this idea that love doesn't conquer all. And like a lot of romantic writing, it is set in the Middle Ages. Then we have her 1826 novel, The Last Man. I find The Last Man really interesting because it's pretty science fiction-y. It's set in this post-apocalyptic world and the main character is pretty much Percy Shelley. The description of him matches his appearance pretty perfectly and the main character has a lot of the same personality flaws as Percy Shelley and also droughts, just like Percy Shelley. So in that respect, the Last Man is really interesting. We have Mary Shelley's final two works, Lidore and Faulkner, 
which are both very autobiographical, just like Matilda, and that they have that whole daughter-father-poet triangle. Lidore is her only story with a traditional happy ending, whereas Faulkner is very gothic-y, much like in the Frankenstein vein. These books aren't the only pieces that Mary Shelley wrote. She also wrote a ton of sort of shorter stories and short biographies to raise money for her and her child. In addition to her original work, Mary Shelley also edited a lot of her husband's poetry in an attempt to make people remember and highlight her husband. In some cases, she heavily edited her husband's poetry, and I'll be talking about that a little bit in an upcoming tangent cast. Mary Shelley was politically radical in her writing, like William Godwin and Percy Shelley, but the way she was politically radical was a little bit different than both Godwin and Shelley. Both Godwin and Shelley were pretty focused on the individual in their writing, whereas Mary Shelley tended to explore the concept that working together was the best way to fix problems and really explored how women operated in the family. She also tended to criticize the traditional family model in her writing, especially the idea of children as childbearers. We can especially see that in Frankenstein. So that is Mary Shelley and a brief overview of her work and some of the themes that come up in her work. Obviously, there's so much that has been written about Mary Shelley, and this is just a surface level look. For this podcast episode, most of my research came from Fiona Sampson's In Search of Mary Shelley, The Girl Who Wrote Frankenstein, as well as her articles about Mary Shelley that came out in The Guardian. I also used Emily Sunstein's book, Mary Shelley, Romantic in Reality, Miranda Seymour's book, Mary Shelley, and Andreas Tuber's essay on Mary Shelley's life and works. Next episode, I'm going to be wrapping up the British Romantics with baby death boy John Keats. I'm also going to be releasing this week a tangent cast on her sister, Claire Claremont. As always, tangent casts are available on Patreon for patrons who donate $5 or more a month. The Patreon is available at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. If you can contribute financially, I really hugely appreciate that, but I understand that not everyone can. As always, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me at sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you want to reach out to me on social media, you can do so on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod or on Instagram for dank memes at sadgirlstudy. The best way to help this podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you want us on another podcatcher that we're not on, let me know. Let me know and I'll do my best to make that happen. And please let me know how I'm doing. Rate or review or else I'll be sad. Thanks!